Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the 10 Laws Podcast with East Forest. I am East Forest, even if my voice sounds a little different, that is because I'm recovering from COVID. That's right, after uh, two plus years of avoiding any obvious symptoms or positive tests of COVID, I have officially joined the club, as they say, and today is probably the first day that I feel... Uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm working at about 50%, which is, that sounds bad, but I'm, I'm calling that a huge success because I was, I was really down for the count and bedridden for about three of those days for sure. And Rada taking excellent care of me and man, it's, it's, it sucks. Doesn't it suck? <laughs> like, and just all the stuff we've gone through and here, you know, just going through getting ill from COVID doesn't make it any fun. And um, I don't know, I'm just feeling pretty beat up. But I'm back in the sense that I'm able to at least record this this podcast. And I just recorded a podcast with Bernardo Castrop, who we're going to share today. And I told him when we started I, that I'm my, I have a bit of brain fog. I definitely do, which is scary. You know, it's scary to feel like you just, your brain isn't quite putting things together as you'd like and Bernardo is yeah we we've been working on setting up this podcast for a long time he's brilliant and he's a what says on his website he is his work has been leading the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism the notion that reality is essentially mental he's got a PhD in philosophy and another PhD in computer engineering uh, and so he's a smart guy and I want to be at the top of my game mentally. <laughs> I don't feel that I am. So I'm just trying to hang on here. But in some ways that's good because it's like, at least as I'm, I'm listening and following along to his, his ideas and his thought patterns, I'm, I'm working to just kind of, you know, fill in the gaps and hopefully that's helping you do so in the conversation. Um, there's a lot there. There's a lot there in this conversation, and he's someone who has such a deep and rich world, and I hope you enjoy this because it's it's like I love bringing in um, vantages that are like, you know, not the everyday ones maybe for our community, and it's always, it's always good to like poke at the bear from different sides, as it were. So this is a great one in that regard, and I think you are going to enjoy it. I do want to let you know that there there might be some changes afoot in regards to some of the upcoming touring, uh, some things shifting around. I don't have all the details and answers on that, so stay tuned uh, for how that might change some of the dates this fall. Um, it, we just have to roll with the way these things roll, so more on that. As always, if you're on the newsletter, that's the best way to know about live dates or any things we're offering um, when they, they go live first or any shifts that might be happening. Uh, the Eslin Retreat is still scheduled. That is December 9th through 12th. That will sell out. And I just looked. There's about 10 spots left, I believe. So if you're interested in joining us at Eslin, uh, with Rada and myself for that that Friday through Monday retreat. It's a magical place, and it's always wonderful to get together in person. Uh, you know, if you're considering it, uh, now would be the time to sign up and see if that's a good fit for you. 
We hope to be back there in 2023 um, a couple times, and we've been talking about dates, so if those happen, we'll, we'll let you know when those get announced. But for now, it's December, and I also have a new album that is coming out. It's going to come out, I think, in a couple days, September 8th, I believe, on the Calm app. I don't know if any out there are users of Calm, but uh, I have this album called Headwaters that I will be releasing on the DSPs, like Spotify and Apple and so forth, and and Bandcamp and stuff, in a couple weeks. But right now, I'm pretty sure, because it's not quite out, this is why I'm guessing it's supposed to be out on September 8th, 2022. Uh, it's a four-track album that is instrumental, largely. Of course, it has you know, vocalizations and so forth. But I recorded it live in a, a ceremony yeah, down in southern Utah with this beautiful Beckstein piano. And I'll tell you more about that record in coming weeks. It has a beautiful story of how it came to be. And it was just this really special moment in time. And I'm just glad that it, it, it turned into an album. And uh, Calm was kind enough to put it out for us. And then I also did two more tracks, sort of like little exclusive tracks that are just on Calm. Uh, two more piano tracks. So all of that's over there right now, and or in a couple days, depending on when you're listening to this. And uh, like I said, I'll tell you more about that record soon and share some music from it. And also, you'll be able to listen to it eventually on you know wherever else you listen to music. But thank you to Calm, and go check out the new album, Headwaters, if you'd like to hear it. I just want to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. We have this thing called The Council on Patreon, and it's a way to support this podcast as opposed to doing uh, other kinds of adverts and so forth, and a way to support the East Forest Project in general. So thank you for those who go over to patreon.com slash eastforest. See the different things we have to offer and the different ways you can support. If, if support feels right to you, uh, we sure do appreciate it. And we do. Uh, I saw actually a couple people from the Patreon when I was in North Carolina at the Ram Dass retreat, which was beautiful. <laughs> as was uh, the, the trip I took to upstate New York just before that, uh, working on the documentary. And seeing Andrew there, uh, one of our longtime supporters, um, it's just it's always great to see people important uh, in, in person is important, but it's also so great to do it in our monthly council. It just feels like we're already spending that time together and spending time to witness and share that self-awareness together. So check it out, patreon.com slash eastforest. Um, and thank you for the other support you do send, uh, the well wishes and the ideas and questions, the guest suggestions for the reviews that you leave for the podcast. That's always helpful on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, and you can always say hello at team at eastforest.org or over at eastforest on Instagram and eastforest music on the other platforms. Okay, so... We're going to dive into this this conversation with our new friend, Bernardo Castro. Bernardo, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Where, where are you hailing from in Europe right now? I'm in the south of the Netherlands, close to Belgium and Germany. Ah, 
lovely. And the most yeah. brightly lit spot on Earth if you take a picture from space at night. <laughs> Is it really? It's very, very brightly lit, yeah. <laughs> wow. How do you think that affects your consciousness, living in a place that's just inundated with electricity and light? Do you have any sensations that being in a place that like, like for instance, my other place I, I'm in in southern Utah is one of the darkest places on the planet. And I, when oh. I go down there, I feel very like just seeing the stars and the Milky Way. It's, it's incredible. But have you ever thought yeah, that about it? Yeah, I'm sure. I miss seeing the, the, the night sky, the constellations in their full glory. Um, I do see the stars at night. I mean, this is a part of Europe that is very densely populated, but mm. it's, um, how to say, it is uh, sanely urbanized. Uh, so there are lots of parks, there's a lot of green, uh, it, it's not too busy. Um, like New York is 10 times worse than, than mm. where I am. Uh, so you can still have a life more or less close to nature. You know, there are wild animals in the few spots of forest that, uh, that are yeah. still here. So it's sane uh, compared to the rest of the world. Uh, but I do miss the night sky. Yeah, to, to see the night sky in its full glory, I usually go to an island in the North Sea. Uh, with very little light pollution for for our references here. Now, of course, Utah, would, for me, would be a dream. Yeah, well, we've got to get you out sometime. I mean, it's really quite incredible down there because it's also at 7,000 feet. Um, do the math on meters. So it's just, it's so dark and so high up that, you know, the Milky Way and what you see, I just, it kind of reminds me like what humans saw forever. And I, I, I mean, well, this is sort of a little bit of a tangent, but not really. Um, <laughs> how it changed our perception of who we are and yeah. our, our recognition of actually, you know, the way the mind kind of takes over and our ego takes over when uh, you, you're not humbled in that way. By every single night, you just look up and it's like, okay. There's a lot going on up there. And as we started to take over the night, I think it changed us in one of many ways. Oh, we lost the night completely. Not because, not only because uh, we can hardly see the stars anymore, uh, but because people don't even bother to look up. <laughs> uh, we, are, we are busy watching Netflix all evening. Uh, yeah. When we go out at night with friends, one of those rare occasions, uh, we barbecue and we light up. Uh, um, uh, candles and we never look up and we are always active uh, the mystery of the night is gone I mean if you go back to the first half of the 19th century uh, what you had at night was the darkness and candlelight but little candlelight not those yeah. garden candles we have today you know, which yeah, like yeah. torches uh, and so people would leave half their time in that mystery liminal realm uh, of the night that we completely lost, a realm populated with stories, uh, uh, with recollections, uh, things kindled on the fireside. And now it's all gone. Now it's all music. It's all loud. It's all lit up. Um, and yeah, and yeah even, even if we could see the stars, we wouldn't because we don't look up. <laughs> you look up through an app to see what they, what they are, go. what they mean. Yeah. Um, there's, I, I read a book by Charles Eisenstein a long time ago, one of his very first books, The Ascent of Humanity, and this is probably a terrible way to sum it up, but he sort of was talking about how 
almost like a fuse was lit at the first fire from the Stone Age. And that fire, in a sense, like, separated us from the night. Now we've, we've been, it's our first uh, mechanism of control. And now we could, we could be warm and we had the light. And that fuse led us progressively down our path, uh, this slow exponential path, ultimately, you know, towards the Bronze Age and then ultimately to agriculture and, and, and the nuclear age and, and the information age and so forth. And then perhaps, you know, another notable point on that is like the, the iPhone or the phone itself, which has changed our world so dramatically. And we definitely need to start here and, and, and give a little bit background to your, your thinking and what we're going to talk about. But I, I think a lot about how the phone itself uh, has changed our own perception of self and mind and uh, in such a dramatic way. And I think it's really fascinating that we're starting this conversation about light and, and the phone being this form of like our own star that we're mesmerized by that, you know, that, that sort of takes away the night, takes away our dreams in a way. You know, Netflix says that their main competitor is sleep. That's what they've said that. <laughs> that's, the, that's their main thing they fight against. It's not another company. Um, so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the way the phone itself has been a major evolutional point in humans. And, and then we're going to talk about, you know, how this might relate to your philosophy of belief here. I don't think the example of the phone is a particularly unique example in the many patterns of addiction that have come to constitute uh, Western life. And Western life is now also the life lived in the East. Indians and Chinese uh, have adopted Western lifestyles. Um, You can look at this metaphorically. Uh, Our escape from the darkness of the night is an escape from what Jung called the unconscious. It's an escape from the deeper layers of our own minds, our own personalities, our own past, our history, our own desires, uh, secret desires and secret fears. And um, we lost uh, the natural ability that human beings had to sort of give a place to all these aspects of the self. Um, we've mm. become alienated from them. And that, uh, that is both literal and metaphorical. You know, the escape from the darkness of the night through you know, Netflix and, and mobile phones is, is escape from the self. It's an escape from all those aspects of the human mind that we don't want to know. We don't, we don't want to be acquainted with. We don't want even to acknowledge that they are there because they entail aspirations that we don't know how to deal with. They entail traits that uh, we don't want to recognize in ourselves. Um, So we are forever in an escape towards distraction. And the phone is just one more thing. Social media and the hysteria of the political discourse today, it's one more escape. There are many other escapes. Uh, Netflix is another. Meat consumption is another and then mm-hmm. alcohol is a big one. Porn, another big one. Um, success has become a addictive pattern of escape. You have to succeed in a number of things to sort of keep yourself distracted and entertained. 
um, and avoid confrontation with the bigger questions like uh, yeah what does this success mean what life is all about you know is, is there meaning to it all and uh, who, who am i really all these questions fall by the wayside because of our myriad patterns of addictive behavior which characterize the very core of society there's another addiction maybe the biggest of them all um it's the addiction to self-importance even mm. our well-being industry has as its first axiom the notion that your life is about you it's all about you your life is about you i mean this is the most unnatural thing that human thought has ever conceived of course your life is not about you you're a part of nature uh, what's going on is about nature uh, it's not about you um, but yeah, that addiction to the personal self perhaps is is the biggest and most dangerous one. Yeah, and so, well, certainly uh, social media, which is largely accessed through the phone, is has not has put a little gas on that fire. Uh, but let's let's so let's talk about: uh, Are you defining a, a, a separation between nature and the self? Or maybe we should start to get into like the, the constituent blocks here of your thought process. So people in the audience who might not be familiar with your work, um, we can have something to work from. Um, how, how would you define uh, the self or our view of, of reality? Oh, these are, these are related <laughs> but different things. Um, it depends on what one means by the self. Um, uh, mm -hmm. One could define the self as the individual self, that person who was born on that date, who does this and that for a living, who looks like that, who has those personality traits, marriage, that other person, the individual self. That individual self is just a narrative in our minds. Um, children, before they are educated, or one might say indoctrinated with the particular narratives of our time, they don't have that sense of an individual self fundamentally separate from the rest. I have a, one of my most vivid memories was a time when I probably was nine years old. Um, and when the thought came to me that uh, I am me, I, I am not the other people in the world I see beyond me. And to my nine-year-old self, that thought, which was the beginning of the ego, uh, was incredibly weird. It, it, it used <laughs> to give me a sort of a, a cold shiver running down my spine, from the neck down my spine. Um, and I thought that was so bizarre. And for six months, every time I would have that thought, I am me, I'm not the rest. I would mm. go like, what? Wow, this is so, so uncanny. Because it was obviously right, and yet it was obviously wrong. And, and, and that confrontation between the truth of the culture and the natural truth, uh, I experienced that as very uncanny. Um, there is no fundamental separation between us, what we really are, and nature. We are the eyes, one pair of eyes through which nature looks at itself. And that's all. Uh, we have a localized perceptual perspective and we can't read each other's thoughts, but beyond that, we are not agencies fundamentally separate from the movements of the natural ocean of things. Uh, we are in for the ride. Now, the other idea of the self would be your core subjectivity. So not a narrative of personhood, not a date of birth, a name, a job, just that 
pure subjective point of view to which experience is given. Subjectivity itself, that which would remain if suddenly you became amnesic while uh, inside a sensory deprivation tank. So you perceive nothing and then suddenly you become amnesic. If there's still something it is like to be you, yes, there would still be your core subjectivity. It is empty of contents, but it, is, it still feels like something. Now that self, that is the natural self. And it's the same in you, in me, in everybody else. Uh, um, it's one movement of nature, one of the many movements of nature. And that natural self is true. Subjectivity is true. I would go as far as to say it is fundamental. It doesn't arise from anything else. At its most fundamental level, nature is a spatially unbound field of pure subjectivity and everything else are patterns of excitation of, the, of that field. But who in Western society and culture today identifies with their core subjectivity no one um, hardly anyone well there are there are exceptions luckily otherwise we would be lost but um, most people identify with their uh, narratives of self their individual personal selves not only that they make their whole lives about that narrative of self because that's what the culture teaches your whole life is about you meaning that personal self and that puts a responsibility on the shoulders of the ego that the ego simply cannot hold. The ego is not an atlas sustaining uh, um, responsibility for the destiny of the world on its shoulders. Uh, but that's what we try to do. And, and invariably, we ultimately will fail. And, and therefore, the epidemic of depression, anxiety, suicide, and addiction that we see around us today. Where do you see the role of individual choice uh, in this moth? Do you believe that we have the free will then still to be making decisions, or is it a kind of ruse amidst um, <laughs> like a, a, a river that we're just flowing in? I think the whole discussion about free will tends to be a red herring. Um, we don't choose our next thought. We don't choose how we feel about things. We don't choose our desires. We don't choose who we fall in love with. We don't choose our fears. If we could choose all these things, then even if I were locked up in solitary confinement serving a life sentence, I would be the happiest man on earth because I would choose those conditions to be the ones that made me feel the best. That would be my choice. But do we have that choice? No, we don't. Um, maybe we can choose our mortgage package. We can choose our way to work. Um, <coughs> we can choose... I don't know, very little, very little. Most of our choices are the choices that we think we make. We as the ego are not made by the ego at all. They are just co-opted by the ego. These are choices made by the movements of the impersonal within us, the movements of nature as it expresses itself through us. Um, and that, that is the case when the choices are good and that's the case when the choices are bad. I think our responsibility resides in morally overseeing what nature wants to do through us because nature is obviously amoral it uh, it, it doesn't pass value judgments uh, like uh, oh this is fair or this is unfair this is good or this is not good nature is spontaneous it just unfolds and so does the impersonal mind within us which is most of the mind we consider ourselves um and so the ego has the responsibility to pass metacognitive value judgments 
um, and keep nature in check when it goes down an alley that is morally irreprehensible. Um, so we have not only, I think, the choice, but the moral obligation to not follow through some movements of the impersonal in us. And then we have the choice and the moral obligation to not resist the movements of the impersonal in us when they are conducive to creativity, to manifesting something in the world that can only come to the world through us. Um, and we have some degree of autonomy for making sure that uh, we preserve ourselves as a tool of nature because the impersonal doesn't care whether you will have a roof over your head tomorrow or money to buy clothes and food. It doesn't care about that because it is impersonal. So we, we have some autonomy, I think, and some responsibility to make sure that at the end of the day we can survive so we can continue to be tools of nature. Um, but we are tools of nature. We are segments of nature. We are not a thing in itself. We are not separate or autonomous. We don't have absolute freedom over the goings-on in our own minds. And I think that's empirically clear. We don't choose our thoughts. We don't choose our emotions. We don't choose our desires. None of that. We can only supervise and pay attention. And that's a lot. To supervise what nature is trying to do through you is a huge moral <laughs> responsibility that requires discipline and humanity uh, to things that are in very short supply. Um, and it requires courage as well to not resist the movements of the impersonal within us when they are morally okay. It requires a lot of courage to do that because we have this knee-jerk reaction given by our culture to make our lives about us. And that's not what nature is trying to do. Uh, if you go along with the movements of the impersonal in you, you realize that n almost nothing of what you do is about you. It's about something else that we are not able to understand. We don't have the cognitive system yet to do that. We are just you know, monkeys running around a rock darting through space. And we've been around for 200,000 years with an intellect for 30,000 years. In other words, a blink of an eye ago, not even yesterday. We don't have the cognitive apparatus to understand what nature is trying to do, nor do we need to. We don't need to understand to play our part. All we need to do is to not resist when we shouldn't <laughs> and to pass moral judgment on what nature is trying to do so we don't become evil <laughs> because nature is morally neutral. Nature is morally neutral. So in that way, do you see the consciousness that we perceive, it's more of like there's there's essentially one consciousness and we're just picking up on it. We perceive it as ourself, as a separate self, but it's an illusion. Well, I think, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll immediately tell a conclusion of something that probably requires hours to articulate properly. But I think uh, the only way to avoid... Um, some of the key philosophical and scientific contradictions, uh, uh, contradictions we are facing today, the only way to avoid all that and have an explanatorily powerful and internally consistent worldview is to postulate that uh, nature is mental, not your mind alone, not my mind alone, uh, mentation out, out there, transpersonal mental processes that present themselves to us as what we call the physical world upon observation. Um, and that we are just segments of that one field of subjectivity, that one spontaneous natural mind. 
just like the um, alters of a person with dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder, just like the alters of that person think they are separate minds until the person is cured and all those alters become reintegrated into the host personality, at which point the one mind going on realizes that uh, it was doing everything. It was doing all the alters. It, it was just in a state of dissociation. Like we are dissociated when we are asleep and we are dreaming. We think we are our dream avatar uh, and not the rest of the dream. But actually it's us doing the rest of the dream as well. The people, the cars, the world outside, they are us too. But during the dream, we are dissociated from those aspects of our mind that are doing the rest of the dream. Um, when we wake up, we realize, oh, there was only one mind going on, and it was doing the whole dream. Same thing here. I think life is what a dissociative processing nature looks like. Uh, bodies, metabolism, biology is what dissociation looks like. Um, and therefore, we are not really fundamentally separate from the mind of nature. We are the mind of nature undergoing dissociation. Um, we are just... Um, inferentially isolated, which is the technical term. Um, we cannot access all the thoughts, memories, and, and, and ideas in the mind of nature because we are dissociated. But the core subjectivity in us is the core subjectivity of nature. It's one and the same thing, just playing a game of cognitive associations and dissociations which lead to the appearance of this connection. Uh, but that's just a phenomenal appearance. It's nothing... Uh, uh, um, inherent or intrinsic or fundamental, it cannot be because uh, uh, postulating that it is leads to insoluble problems and internal contradictions. So there has to be oneness at the bottom level of nature. Otherwise, we just don't know how to make sense of things. Hmm. How does this viewpoint uh, pair up against sort of Eastern ideas of non-duality or is there any crossover there? I'm, I'm not an expert in that, so take everything I'm going to say with a grain of salt. But um, based on the little I do know, I think uh, these two ideas may probably be one and the same, just articulated in different ways, uh, with different emphasis, different metaphors, maybe a different spin here and there. Um, and where they differ might be only in things that are ancillary and not very important, some some details, uh, that's where the differences occur. Um, but it's not surprising to me, you know, that if what's go really going on is one mind and we are segments of it, then of course people would have stumbled against this truth every now and then, regularly, throughout history, throughout the geography, and that they did stumble against it three and a half thousand years ago in the Hindus Valley, it comes to me as no surprise. That's what I would expect if this is what is actually going on. Yeah. Have, have psychedelic experiences informed your thinking on, on this at all? Because I hear uh, a lot of this makes me think of um, when people have sort of an ego death, quote unquote, from a high dose uh, tryptamine or psychedelic experience, and they still have this subjective view of consciousness, but the, their self is gone. And that's sort of the realization they're, they're somewhat speaking to, not as eloquently as you are right now. I did psychedelics for the first time already in my 30s, so uh, relatively late. And uh, I was already articulating you know, an, an idealist ontology of the kind I'm discussing with you. Um, I did it 
partly because of curiosity and partly because I felt that anybody who writes books about mind got at least turn the bigger stones in the field and look underneath um, yeah. in order to speak with any minimal level of authority. So I felt I needed to do that. Um, so I don't think psychedelic trips have motivated the way I see things. I come at it from, and that's a limitation. I'm not saying this with pride. It's a limitation, but I come at it from either a purely or a largely analytical, logical and empirically driven perspective because that's been my education. I was educated in science. My first job, I was 22 years old. I landed a job at CERN in Switzerland, working on the data acquisition system of the Atlas experiment, part of the Large Hadron Collider. So back already in 96, I was hunting for the Higgs boson, which would become famous only <laughs> years later. Um, so th that's, that's where I come from. That has been my background, my education. Now, that said, after the larger dose psychedelic trips I had, um, I cannot help but realize that the trips are consistent with the conclusions I arrived at from rational thinking and an empirical consideration of laboratory evidence. Mm. They dovetail uh, very nicely, especially the experience of ego death. Um, the state of mind you land into after ego death, uh, it's very hard to put it in words. <laughs> it, it, it's still somewhat dissociated. You're not God. You're, you still don't know what's happening in the galaxy of Andromeda. But there is no personal self. And this seems like a contradiction. And it is, if I frame it in these terms. But that's the thing about the psychedelic experience. It takes us beyond our cultural categories. In other words, we, we just don't have language. To We cannot English uh, or, or, or Dutchify uh, that experience, which is perhaps the most valuable thing of a psychedelic uh, trance. It, it shows you how much territory there is beyond our very limited map. Mm -hmm. um, how much is, is, is real and present and an intrinsic part of us that we have no language for. And, and that does dovetail with my thinking. So it did. It reinforced my thinking and the other way around as well. My thinking allowed me to sort of integrate the psychedelic experience in a way that made sense and made me comfortable with it, that allowed me to give it intellectual permission to be what it is, as opposed to going to some kind of cognitive dissonance that is very hard to live with. Yeah. So this worldview, it seems like it brings a level of solace to you, but I'm I, I'm just trying to understand it because you know it's a bit heady, and that's fine. I'm just trying to like understand that it's you're not saying that it's not so impersonal in a way that like there's no meaning, like it's not this nihilistic view of the universe. Am I correct in that regard? Yes, I'm still a naturalist. I don't think what's going on is the result of a premeditated, rational plan by some kind of sadistic deity that makes us suffer <laughs> for no reason since the deity already supposedly has all the answers. I don't think that's what's going on. I don't mm -hmm. think nature does what it does because it's following the plan of a metacognitive designer. I don't think we have reason to entertain that hypothesis seriously. 
because nature's behavior is extremely regular and largely predictable. And that suggests that it behaves spontaneously and not because of a chain of thought. Um, so I am a naturalist in that sense. Now, that said, I, I do think nature is essentially mental. And if it is mental, then the physical world is not all there is to the story. The physical world is a appearance, a representation. Uh, it, it's, to, make a, to use a metaphor I like, um, if the real world is the storm in the sky outside an airplane then the physical world is a representation of that storm on the dashboard of the airplane. In other words, the physical world is a cognitive representation that gives us um, salient and accurate information about nature, like a dashboard of dials in an airplane gives you salient and accurate information about the sky outside, but it isn't the sky outside. And in the same way, the physical world isn't the actual world outside. It's a dashboard representation thereof that we have to take seriously for the same reason that the pilot has to take his dashboard seriously, otherwise he'll crash the airplane. Um, but we shouldn't take it as the end of all things. Um, there is a world behind the dashboard of an airplane. Um, and if you measure that world, the dashboard displays something. But what the dashboard displays is not that world. It's a representation thereof. There is an extra dimension of depth and meaning. Uh, what the dials on the dashboard show, they have a meaning. Like if you see a little needle moving up and down, that's your airspeed indication. So it means that the air outside is flowing around the airplane with a certain speed. Um, the dials mean something. And I think in exactly the same way, the physical world we see around us means something because it's a representation of something behind and beyond itself, something that is by definition non-physical because what we call physicality is the representation. Um, and that envelops your life with meaning again because the physical world now is a book to be understood, not a mechanism to be controlled or predicted. Um, it is rich in semantic meaning. I'm using the word meaning here in the literal sense. The physical world denotes and connotes something beyond itself, something that transcends itself in the same sense that the sky outside transcends the dashboard. It's beyond and behind the dashboard. And it is being pointed to by the dashboard. So the physical world is pointing at something behind and beyond itself, the real world in which we actually exist and which is hugging us from all sides. Is that something that can give you solace? Uh, yes, it can give you solace against meaninglessness. Actually, it does away with the whole idea of meaninglessness. It just reveals it to be absurd and you know an internal contradiction of a wrong line of thinking. Um, so meaning is out, but it does bring the biggest fear of humankind back to the table. Uh, you know, the biggest fear we have had throughout history and prehistory has been the fear of what we will experience after the major change in the state of consciousness that we call death. Now, materialism, since the late 19th century, has eliminated that fear, the biggest fear of humankind, the fear that governments have used throughout history to control people. 
government and institutions uh, like the church have used throughout history to control people. That fear is gone, was gone. It's coming back now because materialism is such a baloney. But um, it comes back under idealism because now death is a major change in your state of consciousness. Um, yes. And that, like psychedelic <laughs> trips tell you, no, those yeah. changes can be difficult. Yeah. So with the... Uh the idea of the instruments on the dashboard is essentially like our nervous system is uh, the dashboard in a sense. Like we perceive the world and clearly our perceptions of it is not the world itself. There's more to it than that. I can take that on. Um, but <clears throat> beyond that, would you say that our art, for instance, creativity is that still a form of the dashboard, but one that's like a broader uh, instrument that's measuring consciousness and reality itself? Or, you know, I, I'm just trying, as an artist myself, you know, I like to think about how, how, how do we represent uh, reality or the world or consciousness? And it's the only way I can think. It's the best way I, I know how, because it's, it's not literal in a sense. And... I don't know where creativity comes from or what these things are. It almost seems like it swims through or you're an antenna picking things up. And there's this playfulness to that that comes through the universe. And even if it is just law playing out, it's still so beautiful. We see this in nature as well. It's just there's this inherent, at least we perceive it as beauty, um, and the way things just sort of trickle down. Um, where do you see the role of creativity in art on this dashboard these are the preeminent ways we have to try to transcend the dashboard yes mm. that's correct I, I see the dashboard as something very pragmatic very operational that was constructed constructed by evolution uh, to help us um, uh, survive and reproduce right so it it is not it, it is just that it has a function it's functionally effective and therefore it has taken hold it is not meant to limit. It's meant to allow us to survive, on, 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 given the pressures of the ecosystem where we live. Um, so it, it, it is not malicious. It's not morally biased. It, it, it is just what would naturally arise, given evolution by natural selection. We would never cognitively represent the world as it actually is, because that's not conducive to survival. For the same reason that uh, if you saw your computer files as they actually are, millions of open or closed microscopic electronic switches, you wouldn't know how to use the computer. It would be impossible to use the computer. For exactly the same reason, our cognition doesn't show us the world as it actually is because we wouldn't survive. We wouldn't be able to react timely to environmental challenges. Evolution would encode uh, um, the states of the world out there in cognitive states that sort of highlight what is salient, highlight what is important for survival and allows you to quickly uh, uh, react to environmental challenges without being overwhelmed with data. Um, and it also allows us to survive because if our inner cognitive states would mirror the states of the world as they actually are, there would be no upper bounds to our internal entropy or disorder uh, because there is no upper bounds to the entropy of the world. So if we mirrored that, we, we literally would dissolve into hot soup. So we wouldn't be able to survive. So this is all very pragmatic, functional stuff. Um, but 
in essence, the being within which the dashboard operates because of pressures by evolution, that being is itself not in the paradigm of the dashboard. Um, we can represent that being on the dashboard. Just look at another person. You see a body, brain, brain activity. That's a dashboard representation of our actual beingness. Our mental states are represented on a dashboard as patterns of brain activity. Um, but the thing in itself is the mental stuff. The thing that gets represented on the dashboard as a brain, that thing is not itself the brain. In the same sense that air speed is not the needle on a dial. Uh, it's that which is represented by the needle on a dial. Um, we are mental beings that are cooped up in the dashboard for as long as we are alive, as far as perceiving the states of the world outside. But, but from within, we are the core subjectivity that is the very foundational level of all nature. And that is not limited to the paradigm of the dashboard. And what artists and creatives constantly try to do, even some theoreticians, because there are very inspired theories in, in science as well, um, what, they, what they are doing is they are nurturing that mental um, spring, that, uh, that, 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 that source, that spring of creativity that we inherit by the mere fact that we exist, we inherit because we are segments of the, the mind of nature and that transcends the paradigm of the dashboard. So on a practical level, uh, if people are listening to this and they're thinking about, of course, themselves <laughs> as an isolated self and, and most people want to alleviate their suffering and if they take it even a step further, the suffering of others, how can this viewpoint uh, lead to how they might change their own perception of their life or their perception of even making choices in their life? Well, let me preamble this by saying that I, I didn't come at this because it uh, it may be helpful psychologically. I came at That's this fine. because I think it's, yeah. it's, it's the only worldview that stands up to rational and empirical scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And if it turned out that uh, this would be a demeaning, oppressive worldview, then I would say, well, then, then we have to bite the bullet because that's what it it's is. What is. It's as what far is. as we can determine, <laughs> this is what's going on. Now, um, it turns out that although this worldview that was guided by an interest in truth, it turns out that uh, it can provide solace to the appearance of meaninglessness that pervades our society. It also brings back our original greatest fear. So it's, it's not all roses. Um, and people understand that once they are familiar with it and, and, and this worldview sort of sinks into the body and they realize the implications of it, it's no longer just a conceptual game, then certain anxieties come back and certain things that we consider good become amplified and make life difficult. For instance, empathy, which is sort of the, 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 the sine qua non, the, 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 the key part of being human, it, our humanity could be summarized as empathy. If you have none, you aren't human in a very important sense. Mm. That gets amplified 
and it's it's a good thing morally and ultimately but it makes life very life very difficult too mm. because you suffer along with all the suffering in the world and there is no shortage of that right. suffering it is it, it is it is so crushing so yeah that's that's not really good news is it at least it's not for me i became dysfunctional the first three weeks of the ukrainian war completely dysfunctional because i was in my mind i was sort of living in a dark cold metro station in kiev i i just couldn't shake that off it was my imagination of it but the imagination felt bad too and made me dysfunctional. I just could not shake that off day or night. It took me three weeks to relearn to be a jerk and compartmentalize things. So that's not good either. Uh, what is good about it, and I think it, it's worth the price we pay um, for all the other things I just discussed, is that uh, it, it, it eliminates meaninglessness. It el eliminates futility and banality. We tend to double our suffering because in addition to suffering, we think that our suffering is all for nothing. Because whatever we learn from that suffering, ultimately we are going to die and therefore all of our insights and wisdom will disappear because they are byproducts of the body and the, the body is no longer there. So all of that suffering, for what? For nothing. It's all gone to nothing at the end. It's all oblivion at the end. Now, this, this crazy narrative... That's gone. Now you don't engage in meta-suffering. In other words, you don't blame yourself for your suffering, which makes you suffer double. Or you don't get frustrated by the fact that you are suffering. All you have is the original suffering, which cannot be avoided. And which is even a good thing, because a life without suffering is an unexamined, superficial life. Um, so that's the good news. Um, it is an antidote to many forms of depression, to many forms of um, banalization of human emotion, um, that, uh, that is uh, it, in, in epidemic proportions today in the world. Um, it, it, it's a pandemic. <laughs> it's a pandemic of um, ennui, um, of, mm -hmm. of disenchantment, of, of meaninglessness, of existential horror. Um, that that's gone if you understand and begin to embody this worldview of idealism that's gone nothing is for no reason suffering is a tool um, there is always a silver lining there is always something of tremendous value to be extracted from you know the the despair of suffering and its bottom something can be wrestled out of that dark cave and brought back to the tribe. And it's something that, that carries a lot of light, carries a lot of meaning. Um, Nietzsche was an expert in doing that, into diving deep into the well of despair and coming back with fish for the tribe. Um, and because he had a profoundly religious disposition, despite being an atheist, he had a profoundly religious disposition. It, um, it ultimately drove him to madness, literally. He was mad the final 10 years of his life because his natural disposition, his natural drive to use suffering to, to, to perform a kind of alchemical work on that suffering and turn shit into gold, that natural disposition, that thing nature wanted to do through him and he couldn't resist, was in contradiction with the narratives of his time. 
And, and that cognitive dissonance between his rational belief and what nature was desperately trying to do through him drove him to madness. And idealism can prevent that. Idealism can give us rational permission to allow nature to do its work through us. It's no longer nonsensical. It's no longer woo-woo. What's woo-woo is materialism, uh, which, which is an internally contradictory and empirically untenable worldview that is downright stupid, but plausibility has been manufactured for it by our culture. It has nothing to do with objective assessments. It's a culturally manufactured plausibility. It's purely emotional. It's completely subjective. Um, if we get rid of this artificial narrative, we will be less at war with nature within ourselves. And by materialism, uh, do you define that that reality or the world only exists inside our mind? Like that is the that is the totality. So materialism, materialism is the notion that. Uh, Mind, stuff, thoughts, emotions, wisdom, insight, these are secondary things. They don't really exist. Mm -hmm. They are epiphenomena of non-mental stuff, namely matter. Matter has no intrinsic qualities. It is the only thing that really exists. And mind mm -hmm. stuff somehow magically arises from matter and nobody knows why, uh, but we know that it has to <laughs> because materialism is right, right? Um, th that's the worldview. And it turns mind into a temporary and ultimately inconsequential side effect of material arrangements. And that's, that is the problem. I mean, if this were true, if we had good reasons to think that this is true, then I would say, well, too bad. You know, we have to bite the bullet because even if we don't like it, that's what we have good reasons to believe in. But it turns out we have very good reasons to not believe this at all, not even take it seriously. And, uh, and in that case, we are no longer alienated from ourselves. Because you see, self-alienation arises when you tell yourself that your emotions are not really there, they don't really matter, they are just side effects of evolutionary processes that are material in essence, uh, that all of your learning ultimately is for nothing, because that too is a side effect, that your suffering is for nothing, um, that... that um, integrating the aspects of your mind is, is a waste of time because when you die, it's all gone anyway. So just eat meat and sugar <laughs> and watch porn and buy the next pair of shoes because, you know, that's all there is to it. That is the narrative that is both demonstrably untrue and pernicious because it turns life into a shit show. It alienates us from ourselves. We are mental beings. Now, it, children are mental beings. The idea that they are their bodies, it's something that comes much later from culture. They know there is a correlation between the body and their inner life. You know, when they are sad and they look in the mirror, they see material uh, uh, tears. So they know that the tears are what the sadness looks like, but it's only later that we go beyond and we say, no, no, no. The tears are not just what sadness looks like. The tears are part of what gives rise to the sadness. In other words, the body. Now, that's a culturally bound and frankly nonsensical idea that leads to all kinds of self-alienation. Because now we aren't our sadness. We aren't our, our happiness. We aren't our insights. No, we are a body, this abstract thing. 
that we cannot, for, for the life of us, really sincerely identify with. And that, 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 that uh, cognitive dissonance is gone under idealism because it validates us as mental beings and the body as the appearance of our mentation, what and, our mentation and, and, looks and like. By mental, you mean that literally? Could you, we need to define, if we, we should have done this at the beginning, but mental and idealism, how you're defining it. By mental, what I mean is stuff like thoughts, emotions, fantasies, yeah. pain, pleasure, mental stuff as mm -hmm. opposed to physical stuff like matter, charge, electric charge, momentum, frequency, amplitude. That's physical stuff. Mental stuff is the redness of red, the, the bitterness of disappointment, the exhilaration of insight, uh, mm -hmm. the pain of suffering. This is mental stuff. It's experiential. It's qualitative. In technical words, it's phenomenal. That's what that's the, the the word philosophers use, and we are that stuff. That's what we are. We are our emotions, our thoughts, our mental, experiential inner life, and the body is merely what our experiential inner life looks like when represented on a dashboard. And if we understand that, we are no longer alienated from ourselves. Because you see, our situation under materialism is the following: purely. Quantitative matter, which is what materialism considers to exist in and of itself, everything else is a byproduct. This purely quantitative matter is a mental abstraction. We see a world of qualities, a world of, a world of colors, flavors, scents, but materialism says all those colors, flavors, and scents are generated by your brain inside your skull. They are not out there. Mm -hmm. What is out there has no qualities. It's not experiential. It's purely abstract. If you believe that, what we are doing is the following. We are painting a self-portrait on canvas. And then we are pointing at it and saying, and I am that. That's what a materialist does. Because purely quantitative matter is not empirically accessible. We only have experience to go by. And experience is mental. It's experiential. Um, so matter is an invention of the mind. It's a theoretical abstraction, a theoretical entity meant to make it easier to explain things, and it fails at that. So matter is a creation of the mind. It's a, it, it's a mind's self-portrait. And then we, the materialist tries to explain their own mind in terms of that creation of mind, matter. And that doesn't work. Why? Well, because it's equivalent to the artist painting a self-portrait then declaring themselves to be the portrait and having to explain their own experience in terms of patterns of pigment distribution on canvas. That's not going to work. It's like a dog chasing its own tail. So that's the problem. Uh, uh, that's the alienation we engage in. We paint a self-portrait and we declare ourselves to be that portrait. And that portrait is two-dimensional, flat, black and white, and An low Instagram, resolution. Instagram account, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so in idealism lastly uh this worldview please define that so that we have that on the record here so can you say it again I, I uh, just you. idealism so we had we uh the materialistic view yeah. uh the, yeah yeah i call i i like to call it analytic idealism to to position it within the framework of analytic philosophy Mm. which is how we have been doing philosophy since the 1920s now for 100 years. Okay. So 
it, you, you, you talked about this like as an antidote to banality, but do you see this like this viewpoint as an antidote to kind of our problems? Like, do you see us lost in materialism and that's sort of causing our own demise, not just emotionally, but physically as a people? Like, what do you hope people take away from this? I, I don't think that a sincere and planet-wide switch to idealism would solve all of our problems. I think it would be amazing if that were the case. And I, I don't think this can be taken seriously because we have many other problems. And let's start with human stupidity. <laughs> uh, that is a prevailing problem, and I don't exclude myself from it. So no, my idealism is not a panacea. It's not going to solve all of our problems, but it is going to open doors that we don't even know exist. And, and that can go a long way in helping solve our problems. But to really solve our problems, what it takes is maturity. We are a very young species. You're monkeys, teenage monkeys that live to their 80s as teenagers still uh, and, and, and understanding some elementary fact about reality like well everything is mental just like it appears to be it appears to be understanding this basic fact is not suddenly going to make us to turn us into an adult species that isn't stupid and 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 that doesn't shoot itself in the foot no no that's a a longer term project of nature and and it's fraught with risk we are a big gamble of nature on this planet because it takes one slide off the precipice and we burn the planet down. Yeah. Why do you think this project or this, this, this exists that we, that nature, why is it devised us to even do this kind of experiment of humanity? That's the thing of the question. Why it, uh, it presupposes that there has been an explicit and premeditated goal and plan I don't think that's how it's going on. I think uh, nature is spontaneous. And it may have a telos, a goal, but it is an instinctive goal. It is a sensed goal, not a premeditated goal, not something that has been planned out by nature, saying, well, I want to do these monkeys because these monkeys are self-aware and I like that. I don't think it happens like this. I think life on this planet is a big experiment that uh, goes wrong 99% of the time. 99% of all species that have ever lived are, in, are extinct. Um, so it's nature sort of walking in the dark um, and it only knows if it's getting warmer or getting colder. It, it doesn't know where it's going. It doesn't have a plan, uh, but it does know if it's getting warmer <laughs> and it does know if it's getting colder because it is mental and it senses more or less discomfort as it's going about it. And there is a tremendous level of, uh, of um, uh, discomfort because the universe is so dynamic. Nature is so dynamic. It's desperately trying to do something. Um, so from that perspective, there may be a telos, but the question why presupposes too much hmm. of the mind of nature. I think it's a simpler, more spontaneous mind than the question uh, presupposes. Uh, it's a grand experiment, and the experimenter does not know where it's going. I mean, it seems that it's so grand that, I mean, it's my own self trying to place on it the why, which is one of the great human questions, but it seems like anything that grand would have a why. 
it, it wouldn't just be unfolding for the sake of unfolding. I guess, I, of course, it could. <laughs> well, it, it, it may have a why, but it's an instinctive and sensed why, not a thought through why. And mm. that sensed why probably has to do with metacognition, with self-awareness, because look at what happened to us. We were the first species on this planet that developed a significant level of metacognition, of self-awareness. We, we may be maybe together with some pachyderms or elephants and some cetaceans or dolphins and whales, we may be one of only a couple of species who is able to say, I have a thought as opposed to I am my thought or just identifying directly with the thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, when we say I have hunger or I feel sad, that's a reflection of our metacognition, our ability to separate ourselves as subjects from our mental content. And um, cats don't have that. I don't think they do. Uh, When cats feel hunger, they are the hunger they feel. They're not having the thought, well, I feel hungry right now. I should find a way to eat. Because this naming of their internal state by themselves is a sort of a removal and abstraction of themselves from themselves. And we call it self-awareness or metacognition, the ability to think about our thoughts, the ability to ponder our mental states. And it seems that only us have it and maybe some pachyderms and cetaceans. And, and, and look at what happened. We dominate the planet completely. So nature gambled everything <laughs> at this one feature that makes us unique. It, 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 it went all in, all in. And, it, and the gamble may go wrong. And then it has to start over another four and a half billion years. Uh, well, four billion years of life uh, on this planet. Now, if it's gambling so much on these dangerous, extremely dangerous monkeys that we are, then that sensed telos has to have something to do with what makes us unique, which is self-awareness. So maybe we are the eyes through which nature can metacognitively contemplate itself and take stock of itself and maybe it values it so much that it's willing to burn down the house if that's what it takes. <laughs> There's something beautiful about that. Um, so what do you think is our role with this metacognition? Is it a kind of giving it over, like a kind of surrender? Or what are we to do with that? Or is it, it as the be... Eastern traditions have taught, taught us about, it's about mindfulness, it's simply the awareness of it uh, takes you out of the spell, maybe of materialism. Oh, this, is, this is rich territory. Uh, I, I think it would, it would be morally reprehensible to try to get rid of our metacognition because countless beings have died bloody painful deaths over 4 billion years to allow us to exist. We are at the tip of the arrow of evolution, and it has been a bloodbath of unspeakable pain. Um, So to now go and spit on it and say we don't need it, I think that is the most one of the most morally reprehensible things we could do. We are invested with a responsibility like nothing else in nature, nothing else that we know of. Uh, And we have to bear the weight of that responsibility. We have to make something out of it. We must make something out of it in honor to everything that has preceded us and allowed us to be here looking at the world and saying, this is not how things should be. 
you know, a, a lot, a lot was spent on getting a pair of eyes in this universe to be able to look at the world this way, metacognitively, and to run away from it is beyond an offense. It's, it's, it's just an unspeakable, morally reprehensible thing to do. So no, I think we have to engage with it. Um, metacognition is the source of our human suffering. If we didn't have metacognition, we would be living in the present like cats do. So we would have pain, but not suffering. So we pay a huge price for it as well, but we have to pay that price. And I think the Western understanding of Eastern spirituality is cartoonish in the sense that all it seems to seek, by and large, is uh, to be anesthetized from suffering. We want to get rid of suffering. That's why we go spiritual. Not all of us. But the ones, I think, who really have an understanding of what it means to achieve spiritual goals, they would know that, oh, man, that's not the end of suffering. You don't know what you're trying to get. If you knew it, you'd think again. Uh, but most people, they are in it to stop suffering. They, they are looking for a narcotic, for anesthesia. Uh, um, and I think that's a cartoonish understanding of what Eastern spirituality is. Um, but even if it were not, even if this were actual Eastern spirituality, as a, a, a sort of an attempt to be anesthetized from this condition we call life, I think that's not a way to go then. I would still think that there is a better way to go. There is a, we, have, we are invested with the full weight of nature's moral responsibility, Morality happens through us. And that doesn't make morality untrue. No, it makes it very true, but true because of us. And that is a moral responsibility level that I think most people, if they would really grok it, they would recoil from it instinctively. It would be a knee-jerk reaction to recoil from it. And they would prefer materialism and banality in an absolute vacuum of moral responsibility. Whatever you did in your life, good or bad, when you die, you're dead. That's it. You know? And nothing has meaning anyway. This is incredibly seducing. Um, um, we don't see how seducing it is because we take it for granted. We think it's true. So we don't understand how seductive it is. But when our worldview changes, because you know, there is only so far you can go with something that is internally contradictory and empirically untenable. At some point you go like, yeah, okay, we can't sustain this fairy tale anymore. The moment that happens, we will miss materialism because uh, then we cannot take it for granted anymore and we'll realize suddenly how much moral solace it gave us. It basically eliminated moral responsibility from human life. And, and I don't think that is the way to go. I think that's an affront against nature. Um, but there is a price for facing the truth. And, and that's a price that most people naively think is not there. They think, oh, it would be great if I really believe that I will never die as far as my core subjectivity is concerned. I mean, the individual self will die just like your dream avatar dies when you wake up in the morning. You don't go around mourning the death of your dream avatar when you wake up. Neither will, will, will we. But uh, most people think that if they truly believe that the core subjectivity would survive and that death is not the end, that it would be all great. Everything would be fantastic. <laughs> they, they don't know what is awaiting them. 
But anyway. What is waiting them? I mean, essentially what I'm hearing you say is that this kind of personal responsibility, it does boil down to a level of personal choice, that there's this moral um, responsibility. uh, And that has to come down to essentially the choices we're making in our lives, even if this circling back to the beginning of our conversation, even if it is sort of unfolding in a very natural way. Well, how how do I put this? I think the return of meaning pays off for all the negatives. But most people do not really have a clear conception of the weight that um, a more uh, a less distorted view of reality places on them. And it can range from relatively small things like a very concrete sense of moral responsibility. That's tough for a lot of people. Um, but it's a relatively small thing in relation to the others. Uh, another thing, fear of death, because death is an experience that you will undergo and you do not know what it will feel like. All you know is that all the references that make you comfortable, they are not going to be there. That's tough. That's a big thing to live with when you truly understand that this is what's going to happen. But it's also small in comparison to the other things that I can't really explain. Um, I, I, I can only talk around it. And one way to talk around it is to describe it as the, the vertigo of eternity, um, which in our confrontation with naked reality is it, it has the qualities of vertigo. Milan Kundera explained in his book, uh, The Unbearable Likeness of Being from the 80s, won a Nobel Prize in literature for that. It's a fantastic book. In that book, which is a fiction book, he explains what vertigo is. Vertigo is not the fear to fall. Vertigo is the gut desire to jump. And what you then fear is that gut part of yourself. You, you are terrified of that part of yourself that looks down and, oh, it wants to jump. It wants to go. It wants to go into free fall and lose all the references, all sense of safety. Um, and that's the fear. We fear ourselves in vertigo because vertigo is actually the desire to let go. Mm-hmm. Um, and a confrontation with a felt confrontation, an immediate non-mediated direct confrontation with reality as it is, which means confronting the self as it actually is, has the qualities of vertigo. It ropes you in, but it terrifies you of yourself. That it, It's the vertigo of eternity. I don't know how to put this. It, um, I'm not an enlightened person, but I suspect that the vertigo of eternity is the antechamber of enlightenment. And if that is so, I, I, I don't want to be enlightened. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll gladly give it a pass. <laughs> wow. And that's what most people don't really grok, um, especially Westerners practicing Eastern spirituality. You know, they go all with that benevolent smile and they think, no, 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 I'm, I'm, 
uh, I'm transcending suffering. Actually, they're just sublimating suffering. It's a completely different psychological process. And they think that, oh, it's so comforting and warm and fuzzy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wait and see. You know, if they succeed, then they, they'll get a glimpse of what it really is. And it may be peaceful in a sense, but I'm not willing to pay the price for that peacefulness, if you ask me. And so the the role of suffering to you is what? Well, that suffering is nature's means to make us ask the big question. You see, four billion years of a bloodbath were invested into developing a metacognitive being who can ask the questions because that's the the role of metacognition. The role of metacognition is to ask the questions, not to provide the answers. The answers arise spontaneously. Um, but you have to ask the right question. Um, we, we underestimate the value of asking the right question. If you ask the right question, you're 95% there. The rest happens spontaneously. It, it, it's a sort of a, a, a spontaneous reaction of nature. The answers just come. But you have to write. You have to ask the right question, and that's very difficult and can only be done with a lot of metacognition. Four billion years of a bloodbath were invested into equipping us to ask the question, and we don't ask the question unless we suffer. So suffering is the natural mechanism to force us to confront reality and ask the deep questions. Who are we? What is going on? That's the deepest of all questions. What is going on? What is actually going on? Because if you stop to sincerely evaluate our circumstances, you understand that this is the deepest question, and we are nowhere near an answer. This is a mighty strange condition of being alive, fighting thermodynamics at all times to maintain ourselves out of thermodynamic equilibrium by eating other living beings. And then, and then we die. What is that? What is time? Time is the greatest mystery because it's obviously there and it's obviously not there. Both are obvious. Um, but if we didn't suffer, I would tell you what would happen. We would spend our lives surfing, eating strawberries, making love, basking under the sun. We would live a, an Epicurean life and superficial life of pleasures and lack of worry. And if you are having fun and you're not worried, you just don't ask the questions. And four billion years of literal blood, sweat, and tears have been spent into equipping us to ask the questions. And we don't, unless we are forced to by suffering. Suffering is, 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 is a fundamental tool of nature. So it seems like the suffering is a gift from the universe because it wants us to ask these questions. And if we are the universe, it's like the universe itself wants, the universe's meta-awareness wants to, it seems like a kind of evolution, like it's wanting to, like whatever the next level of meta-awareness is, is wanting to emerge for the sake of novelty or, I don't know, but... Yeah, I think uh, no, the spirit of what you're saying is correct, but I personally don't do all the spiritual romanticizing, like suffering is a gift. Let's be honest. Suffering is a piece of shit. It's horrible. <laughs> it's, you know, when you are in the throes of despair, you want anything, you, you do anything to get out of there. It, it's a terrible place to be in. The, the, you know, the, when you are in that dark cellar of despair, nothing else occupies your mind but to find a way to get out. So gift 
no, I, I, I would do fine without that gift. <laughs> no, I, I, I am not looking for it. Um, and I don't romanticize it. What I do is when it comes and it inevitably does, I don't neglect its meaning because you're insulting nature the moment you do that. Look, suffering is inevitable. It's going to come. You don't need to want it. You don't need to romanticize it. You don't need to fictionalize it. Um, it will come and it's terrible. It's dark and it feels like shit. But at least see the value that it carries with it. So you do justice to it and to yourself. And you don't make your life even worse than it needs to be. And I think that's the step we have to make. Suffering is crap, but it will come. So when it comes, let's at least see the value it carries with it. And the value is for nature. The value is not for us. And that's what makes it difficult for us to, to recognize it because we think our lives are about us. You know, most people think their lives are about them. And if that's the case, suffering doesn't do much. Now it will condu to be conducive to insight, but then they're going to die and the insight is gone anyway, you know, because that's what materialism tells them. So if that's the framework you have, uh, uh, you will matter suffer because you will suffer and then you suffer because you are suffering and you shouldn't be because it's all for nothing. You don't recognize the value that naturally comes with it. And what I try to do is not to look for suffering. No, no, I, I have enough while trying to avoid it. I don't need to look for it. But when it comes, I value it for what it brings with it. So it's crap when I am in that dark cellar of despair but at least I have that voice in the back of my mind saying, yes, it's crap. I don't, want it to, I don't want to be here a second longer than I need to be. But I know an alchemical um, gift is going to come out of it. The suffering itself is not the gift. But the gift arises from it. A new level of understanding. A new step in your life. I haven't written a single book that wasn't fed by suffering. Because yeah. when I'm not suffering, the last thing in my mind is philosophy, man. <laughs> when I'm having fun, I'm busy having fun. I'm busy hiking in the mountains of Switzerland. That's philosophical in itself. But I'm busy creating my next computer, which I do for fun. Um, and I'm not philosophizing. I, I don't evolve. I don't mature. I don't become a better human being. Um, suffering gives me all that. The suffering is not the gift. But gifts arise from that. So when it comes, I remind myself something good is going to be is going to come out of this. There will be an alchemical transmutation of this shit into the alchemical gold, into the lapis philosophorum. And I have seen it happen enough times in my life that I know next time it will be the same. Even if next time is the last and the end of the suffering is death, I know there will be an alchemical transmutation going on because. It's part of nature too, just as much as the suffering itself. So I try to see that. I remind myself of it so I don't matter suffer. But I definitely don't romanticize that dungeon. Definitely not. No, I don't want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> meta suffer. Wow. Well, this is a lot to chew on. Uh, is there anything you feel that should be touched on before we close this conversation and, or no, that you'd I, like I, to touch on? I, I know come it could to be these it. things. No, I come to these things with no agenda. So. Uh, I really appreciate it. This is, this is uh, wonderful to talk. Was, someone who's been on the show, Christopher Shin, suggested that we connect. And I know he'll be looking forward to this conversation as, as well as many others. Um, 
How can people connect uh, with your work or dig more into this? If you just type my name on Google, um, you should type my name between quotes. Otherwise, you will get the airport in Denmark, uh, which has the same <laughs> name I have. Really? Um, and that's not what you want. If you start seeing photos of airplanes, uh, then that's not me. Uh, but if you type Bernardo Kastrup, Kastrup, K-A-S-T-R-U-P, uh, then you find my website, my YouTube channel, social media. And there's a lot of free stuff on my website. All of my academic papers are open access. They are there for free. Um, hundreds of essays are there for free. Dozens of videos, maybe hundreds already. So you can get all that stuff for free. You don't need even to buy a book. <laughs> cool. People do buy the book, which is good. Yeah, buy the uh, book but, uh, if you want no, to buy the book. You can go a long way without it, without spending a penny. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. Um, you're helping uh, reawaken my COVID brain. So uh, thanks for helping <laughs> me do the gyrations, <laughs> the mental work. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Bernardo, for coming on the show. It's great to talk with you. Thank you for putting up with my COVID brain. But uh, everything is mental, so it's all part of it, too. Uh, dig into his work. There's, he's, he's right on his website. There is a lot of free material of all different shapes and sizes for you to look at. Um, I highly recommend it. BernardoCastrup.com This song that you're hearing in the background is called Doorway 3, the full version, or extended version. Um, it is sort of like an extra track single that came off the In album, but it's all from live ceremonies. And this is the kind of music that gets created and is featured over on journeyspace.com. Journeyspace is a platform that I co-founded to provide musical guidance for journeys as well as online facilitation. And on September 24th and October 22nd, we're going to be having some guided group journeys that you can join where we'll be featuring um, music of mine that is unreleased, long-form, live, uh, live-created uh, journey music that I've specifically created for Journey Space for you to take a journey to. So check it out, journeyspace.com and see if that is something that interests you. And you can hear more music like this and be supported with integration groups and support. And of course, in real time, support during the journey itself it's a really amazing platform journeyspace.com okay my friends uh till next week i hopefully my voice will be better and i'll be healing up more and more and more uh, you guys keep walking your walk don't take any shit but if you do you know what to do do it with grace <laughs>